and welcome in to another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley, with me as always, a man who is tied for second on the career home run charts among Dan Dickerson's guest radio commentators this week. He is Cody Stavenhagen. How you doing? I was about to say, this week. Yeah, I didn't know you were going to include that qualifier. I was like, I'm pretty sure there are several guys on that list ahead of me. This week, I like that. We tried Actually, to be... it's now last week, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we tried to be precise and factual on this podcast, did we not? So, you know, had to make sure it covered all the bases there. And, uh, and if you didn't get to hear Cody on the radio, you missed out. He did a great job. We'll talk about that later. But this this week, Cody, in, in in Tiger's Land, it was it felt like a like a shorter week game wise because it was basically a normal baseball week. But with the condensed schedule, it feels light. However, off the field news, not light, not a light week for the Detroit Tigers. For those who follow the team, for those who cover the team, uh, I don't really know. Where else to start but with your colleague? And you you did tease this, by the way. You teased it last week on the podcast that there was going to be a Ken Rosenthal story uh, in The Athletic, and it did not disappoint. Um, I don't want to... I want to encourage people to go read it and so you can read Cody's story as well. But if you should click... On Cody's story, subscribe for a dollar, and then go to Ken Rosenthal's story. That's that's the proper order of things, I think, is what we would recommend. However, um, it was jam-packed with information. It wasn't... There were a couple things in there that were brought to light publicly, I guess, for the first time. But it was mainly just kind of a recap of what we've all seen or experienced the past couple years, kind of put into a, a compact... Uh, story the big headline is there's no opt-out in AJ Hinch's contract that's what was reported by Ken that was something that has been kind of floating out there for I would say base more than a year it's definitely more than a year because I remember where I was when that happened I was I was in uh, Missouri we were doing a podcast and uh, that's when that kind of stuff came to light uh, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. Maybe it have been April. I don't. It's, it's been April twenty twenty one. Multiple. Well, more than a year. More than a year. We've been. We've been kind of. Just kind of having to mention it, and it appears that that's put to bed because it's not a thing, right? It's not a thing, so we don't have to kind of hold it in the back of our minds. That's the big takeaway. It goes into also Al Avila's performance as GM since he took over. And then, in fairness, Ken goes back and says some of these problems predated Al. There were a couple things that I just kind of want to give my takeaways from, from that article. Number one... If there's a, an easiness about not having the opt-out in terms of having it to weigh on on fans' minds, great. Now that's not really a thing. Number two, I know it's Twitter, but if you... And maybe I just look at things from a different perspective. So, like, feel free to just kind of tell me where I'm sort of, like, off track here. 
but I just it didn't feel like the drag that it was portrayed on Twitter. There were there were lines in there that really make the front office look bad. In particular, uh, rival executives question whether Alavila is capable of leading the Tigers to you know perennial success or whatever that end qualifier was. I'm not quoting it directly, but rival executives doubt Alavila is the the point of that. Um, but at the same time, Ken does a really good job, and this is why he is who he is, of providing a lot of context and noting that the problems that the Tigers have are not necessarily really unique to them specifically. Like, it's not like a, it's not a flaw that just exists in the 313. Uh, he mentions a lot of other teams like the Royals, you know, who have kind of gone along at the same time. Like Orioles, Nationals, Reds, teams that nationally are not really in the on the front of any baseball fans' minds. And in fairness, there's probably a lot of people who feel like that with the Detroit Tigers too. So you know, that's that's all well and good. But it made me think like this stuff is more common than I think is realized in the general public. That's not to excuse anything. That's not to say that it's acceptable. But I also think it's worth noting that it's not a Detroit Tigers problem, if, if that makes sense. And there's a couple other things I kind of wanted to note. But uh, what what do you kind of take from that, Cody? My take that it's, it's, not, it's not only a Tigers problem. Does that make sense? Yes and no. I mean, that's like losing is not only a Tigers problem. There are other teams that, that, that are bad. One of the best comments under Ken's story, someone was like, oh, so Ken's just spelled out that like one third of the league is not remotely competitive, which is kind of an unfortunate truth. Which ties in into a right story now. he just published as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. So there's that. At the same time, this is a look into, okay, why aren't the Tigers competitive, especially when they are trying to be competitive when they came out and Al led the charge and saying, all right, you know, this rebuild is over. We're, we're ready to try to contend and to win some ball games now. Um, and I think the big takeaway from the story, yeah, there are a couple lines that, that strike a little bit at Al. A lot of it I think is very fair, very balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked with Ken a lot throughout the process of him reporting this story and, um, I was really amazed, you know, Al Avila, I think is the only person directly quoted in this story, but let me tell you, Ken had a lot of long conversations with a lot of people and he's so trusted and respected that he gathered a lot of information and he, he knows how to, um, build relationships while still, um, maintaining his, his ethics and journalistic integrity. I was just very impressed to actually see how Ken works. Number one, um, you know, overall, though, the point of the story is or this needs to be a reality check for the Tigers. You need to accept that you aren't as good as you want to be, as good as perhaps you thought you were coming into this season. And I know this article was well-received on Twitter, people who wanted to read something negative about Al. You know, I did hear from a couple people who were like, oh, well, the article's not fair. It's painted in very broad strokes. I think that kind of points to the point of the article. If you are denying uh, that that the article isn't true in its critiques of the Tigers, then like that's the whole point. It's like 
look at your team, look at your record, how many of these guys on the field right now are actually long-term pieces, and come to grips with the fact that you have a lot of room to get better. Um, Ken sent me that story before it was published. You know, I added a couple little tidbits for further context, and I said, I think you nailed it, because I, I think he did. You know, it, it was a broad overview, but I think he really struck at the fundamental problem behind all of this, which is kind of a lack of self-awareness, um, I think, from the top on down throughout this organization. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't disagree with anything you said there. Uh, you're just going to have to get through this twice on this podcast, Cody, and this is the first one. I'm going to do two football analogies. There's gonna be one later. Oh no! It, oh god! It's 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 it, it's one of those things where if you hate your team's quarterback and they throw like a bad pick, you think that's why he sucks. But if Tom Brady did the exact same play, had the exact same thing happen to him, you wouldn't say Tom Brady sucks in the context of that specific play. Does that make sense? Whereas those are common football plays that everyone goes through. You just only pin it on him because you don't like him so that's what's coming into my head when i'm reading the story where it's like he yeah he's messing up all right however he's not the only one that is messing up and my again i just go back to it people i think live in a bubble <laughs> yes they do i don't think that they 100 percent live in a bubble in various aspects of life and you think that you're the only one that has problems and these problems persist everywhere uh sports being the being at its basis competition is very much the haves and the have-nots not breaking news here tigers in the have-nots category and the teams that are well better run and have better infrastructure better people leading they just repeat success because they take advantage of the teams that don't so uh so my only point is it's not only the tigers that go through this uh, but you're absolutely right that you don't get to this point without missteps, without failures, without, uh, F-ups, uh, which speaking of F-ups, I really love this story from Ken. And I don't know, maybe that, maybe you added this. I haven't, I haven't told you, we haven't talked about this part yet. Did, did, did Jordan Zimmerman really have to catch a stray in this story? Did he? <laughs> I, I did, I did. I did add that one. I just said, <laughs> I just said, you know, even if, you know, because Ken had wrote about the spending or whatever, and I was like, well, if you want to point to um, what Al has done in the, the really the one off season where he was able to spin prior to this one, I was like, well, there's there's Jordan Zimmerman, you know. <laughs> I I did I did add that. I did take out uh, some stuff about like like it seemed like Al had kind of laid out his future pieces and like mentioned like Jake Rogers and. And of course, I love Jake. Known Jake a long time, but like, let's not go to the bank trying to paint, paint him as like the singular yeah. solution at catcher. And I was like, I instead of dancing around, like, is he or isn't he? Like, we'll just take that out. And yeah. there was kind keep of him a moving. Whole, a whole, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So if it sounded like I was a little more positive than than the average person after reading that story, well, let me hold- let me get to the negative. Okay, hold on. The people want to talk about the opt out though. Let's let's just get this. Let's just get this out of the way. Okay. Okay, because we're this story came out from the best baseball writer in the business, and we still have people going around, does AJ have an opt-out? Does he want to leave? 
Um, AJ was asked about that this week from the Detroit Free Press in Arizona and gave a long kind of dodging the question but saying, I want to be here. And I would imagine I try to put myself in people's shoes when things like this happen. If he starts talking about his contract, then every manager in baseball has to talk about their contract. If he starts addressing every little rumor, um, then he has to address every little mm-hmm. rumor, positive, you know, true or false, that comes up from from now on. So I would think that's why AJ is a little bit um, indirect in answering. Hey, do you have an opt out? Now there's still a headline, you know, AJ Hinch refuses to disclose his contract or whatever, and I think that's misleading and kind of piling on because the question has been answered by Ken Rosenthal. AJ Hinch does not have an opt out, and if for some reason you don't believe that, I'm here to tell you. Uh, through in- independent team sources, I can confirm that report. AJ Hinch does not have an opt out. His contract is five years long, and look at sports; things can change. But as of now, he is not trying to leave the Tigers. All right, I know that's been speculated on. Uh, we've even speculated on it a little bit. I think part of the reason the Ken story got started, you know, I was just kind of checking in with Ken and saying, "Hey, there's obviously the team's a mess. I can sense a lot of tensions. There's." Kind of this rumor about AJ about he, out here. like, And Ken's like, well, let me see what I can find out. And because he's the best in the business, he found it out. Um, that's triggered further discussion. I can now pretty much answer all those questions. There's no opt-out, okay? So I know it's fun to speculate about it, but we're going to be done talking about it for and, until something changes. Because there's not an opt-out. AJ Hinch is going to manage the Tigers in 2023, bearing uh, some completely unforeseen circumstance. Um, I also want to say, how did this, how did this rumor get started? Well, Lynn Henning, former Detroit news writer, put out a tweet in April of 2021 that said, you know, details of Hinch's contract have not been made public because he has this opt out. Don't know where he got that information, but it was false. Uh, it was fiction. And Lynn this week, look, Lynn's done this a long time. I have respect for what he's done in his career, but Lynn's no longer around the team every day. I've covered the Tigers for four years. I've seen Lynn Henning in person once, and he kind of backtracked on Twitter this week saying, you know, it was always known there may not be an opt-out, but there is some fine print. There's also not fine print, okay? The bottom line is if someone wants to quit their job, I guess that you can always quit your job, Uh, but there's no fine print. There's no opt-out. I feel like he was basically trying to say, oh, I didn't really mess up. He messed up. He reported something that was completely false that generated um, a big storm of speculation. And at the end of the day, that's not good journalism. That's why our whole industry can get a bad rap sometimes. Um, I think that's all I've got to say on that topic. Um, But there's the truth. We've speculated it. It's settled. No opt-out. Doesn't exist. Not real. I reserve the right to talk about the non-existent opt-out if your media colleagues keep freaking asking about it <laughs> and then i just complain about that but not like actually speculate on said non-existent opt-out is that fair is that fair <laughs> i i guess sure <laughs> that, that's kind of like our new uh, social media policy under the new york times which i'm not a believer in like tweeting through stuff you know i keep my political opinions to myself but our new policy is like you can tweet about politics just not your about specific politics and it's like you know that like that doesn't no one even knows what that means. no Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> need to get some better lawyers to write some of that stuff. Uh, but anywho, uh, I 
Yes, I, I wanted to give my quick thing about the opt-out. I'm glad you kind of followed up and doubled down on it and and kind of took it took us back to how that really started. That topic part, over. Moving on, but still regarding Ken's story. Um, I thought it was interesting that he, I mean, I'm not going to say he gave credit to Al, but he used the phrase under Al Avila, which is true. You know, he does have the title and the job and the overseeing of everything. Uh, the advancement in the analytics department for the Tigers was of note. And when we say like fair story, that kind of stuff is what we're talking about. Uh, resources not the problem is also another phrase in there. It's kind of an interesting line. I uh, Resources is a broad term. It doesn't necessarily mean payroll. It means like access to the best sports medicine and uh, performance science and you know all the, you know that kind of stuff. So that at least is somewhat reassuring. If Ken's gonna put it out there, he obviously believes it to not be false, right? So mm-hmm. so that's the thing. But here's the, actually the number one thing that bothered me about. Al in the story and is uh, being quoted. So he's talking about how everyone's mad or pissed off or you know whatever terminology uh, he used regarding the just the poor season to this point and you know another losing season in all likelihood. And he he just kind of said that everyone's mad and then he says everyone is accountable including the players. And I read that, and I was like, dude, what good was it to say that? What good is it for management, the guy pulling the strings, the guy who signs off on all decisions, to say everyone's accountable, including the players? Like, to me, that's not leadership, in, in my opinion. Like, everyone knows the players are accountable, okay? Like, you don't have to say that the players need to play better. We know that. They know that. A.J. Hinch knows that. Chris Illich knows that. Like, it doesn't need to be said. And to me, it, it just kind of like... It kind of felt like a self-defense mechanism coming from a point of weakness. Where it's like just just take ownership just take ownership of it like no one no one thinks that the players have nothing to do with the win-loss record that does not exist there's not a single person who will listen to this podcast who reads your articles that thinks you know what it's not really Javi Baez's fault that he can't avoid swinging at a slider three feet outside it's not really his fault he's not accountable for it no one thinks that and to me I just thought that that was I just thought that was weak I thought that was very weak and not really something I wanted to read about the person in charge of the team that I root for. So that was obviously, that you talk about negative reactions, that was my most negative reaction. I was like, including the players? Come on, yeah. dude. Come on, dude. No, no, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, and unfortunately, I've heard quotes like that from Al before, and I think that strikes at Again, the point of the article, I think if you read between the lines in that that quote, it's like, well, we built a, a team people thought were going to be good. And the point of the article is like, you thought this team was good and actually it's not. 
Now, I said at the beginning of the season when this team got off to a very slow start, I said, you know whose fault this really is? It's the players' fault. Because mm-hmm. when you have Scope and Candelario and Baez and Tucker Barnard to an extent and on and on, guys just not performing, like, that was on them. Um, and I still feel that way largely, but there is another way to look at it. And now that this has gone on for months and months and months, it's like, well, what did all the analytics tell us before the season? Pakoda picked the Tigers to win 60-something games. Mm-hmm. The, an- the best analytical, analytical models in the industry said, your team's not very good. So even us as the public, me as a beat writer, I was like, this is a pretty good team. I never quite thought they were a playoff team, but I was like, they won 77 games. They made big additions. Like, yeah, I think I think they can be a 500 team. I was wrong, and the computers were right, because the computers were like, you did not actually build a good baseball team. Uh, so there was that thought out there um maybe that came without any human bias and again it actually those systems picked the bullpen to be way worse than it is but nonetheless um there's evidence out there that you didn't actually build a good baseball team and when it comes to al i've I've really tried to be fair i think it's way too easy for al to get a bad rap for al to be blamed for everything but we're at this point now where you're seven years into your tenure your tenure as the general manager You've most of your big prospects are up in the big leagues. You've had some money to spend, and what do we have to show for it? Um, like I just think the excuses have to end, and and like they can't keep coming. It's not just Al. It's like I would say a Tigers organizational problem. Like there are too many excuses, um, and I think that's part of why this article was written. Too many people who don't want to acknowledge the truth the way this thing gets solved is by everyone saying okay we're not good enough how do we get better instead of saying well we might have been better if that's not actually productive you're right and uh another thing that i i forgot to mention this earlier that i like that ken put in there uh talking about how a lot of those free agent shortstops that we obsessed over for three months um, super true uh, have have struggled to various degrees except for Correa and the whole Correa and thing he's missed some games he's missed, you know which was the big knock on him and that was and it's basically a one-year contract so you know he's not gonna mm-hmm. be in Minnesota next year unless they pony up um, but any but anywho it's just I say that to say this this is kind of it's how I would classify it is that the the Tigers as currently constructed are more or less it's like when the Yankees go through a toll booth, it's going to cost the same as if the Tigers go through a toll booth. But it's going to hurt the Tigers more because they don't have resources, pedigree, whatever, that the Yankees do. So, like, the Tigers get affected by the ball being changed or the lockout or COVID or all these things, just like everybody else does. But because of a lack of whether it be in previous years coaching or infrastructure or player development or uh, performance science and like all these things that the best organizations do, it hurts them more. The analogy also holds that I've used for uh, Robbie Grossman's power. You change the ball and all of a sudden the guy who finally got the 20 home runs or, you know, whatever, all of a sudden he's not hitting it out of the park, you know? So it affects everybody the same, but it impacts differently. And that's the state of the Tigers right now. That's well put. Not wrong. 
So, okay, well, we spent a good amount of time on that, and it was uh, justifiable. Uh, before I forget, because I'll forget, because I almost forgot when I was doing my damn notes, uh, Chris Fetter remaining with the Tigers as pitching coach. Uh, there was the... I'm not sure how much of it was official, official interest from Michigan or, you know, conversationally. I mean, if, if there's something you're able to put out there more than what you have already written, um, go ahead and interrupt me. But if not, you know, Cody did write, write about it. Yeah, no, like, like, all right, on this week's pod, we're just telling stuff like it is. So here's, here's what happened according to uh, people with great knowledge of the situation. Michigan had not initially approached Fetter the first time um, AJ was asked about it, you know, in the media. He hadn't been contacted yet, um, which is what AJ said at the time. And I think it was totally fair for people to get worried. This guy's alma mater is calling him. He could be the head coach. He could be in Ann Arbor. Um, I, it, it's kind of hard to say, like, what the money would have been college baseball coaching. It's sometimes hard to get a gauge on, like, would he may have made more or less? I'm not sure. Uh, the schedule, like college is a little more 24-7 with their recruiting, but you probably also get a few more nights at home than you do in the big leagues when you're on the road for so much of the year. Like there were trade-offs, you know, so I think it was fair to be like, oh, could, could Fetter take this job? Truth is, he was never really that interested. Um, I'm sure he gave it a thought and he definitely wanted his alma mater to, he was kind of flattered, you know, that they were interested in him being the head coach. Uh, so he didn't want to do anything to dispel it and make Michigan look bad or be like, I'm I'm in the big leagues now, I'm too good for you guys. So that's why we kind of didn't hear anything for a few days. Michigan did formally reach out, and Chris basically told them, no, nah, I'm good, I want to stay where I'm at. Um, it doesn't sound like it was something that was that hard of a decision for him. I don't know if it's easy to if it's fair to say it was an easy decision, because it's still a major life event. But bottom line, when it came down to it, he was pretty committed to remaining in the Tigers organization. Um, he, AJ, this new player development staff, are are kind of building something. You know, They've been building up this engine, and they just now got the keys to the car, and they haven't actually got to drive it yet. And so when we talk about AJ not having the opt-out, and we talked about when we talk about Fetter telling Michigan no, um, that tells you something, you know, that actually shows there is some commitment from these guys, some pretty serious commitment. And that's pretty much what happened. Obviously the Tigers were, uh, were thrilled to have him back. And that's what happened. Michigan reached out. He told them, no, um, I don't think he wrestled with it all that much. People tell you who they are, believe them. I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's a perfect example right there. And with the AJ thing, because, look, you know, they're they're close. If I'm AJ sure they like, talked about all this. I'm sure they yeah, did. It's yeah. like, hey, dude, I'm out in three months. He's probably taking the Michigan job, <laughs> yeah. you know, or making a lot of other phone calls. So that's, okay, that's the last I'll say about that specifically. I will say this from, like, a human level. Like, I always kind of feel bad when, uh, like, I, I, this is one of the things I've tried to correct myself as an adult, is I don't really root for, like, uh, people not to get promotions. So, like, if your second football analogy, last one. So, if, like, the defensive coordinator is getting head coaching interviews, your natural instinct is like, oh, I hope he doesn't leave because I really like him. But then it's, but then I kind of thought, I was like, well, 
No, I mean, these kind of opportunities only come around so often. I want him to reach the pinnacle of whatever, you know, you know, aspect he wants of his profession to be. So if he wants to go be a head coach, I hope he gets it because that's, you know, that's, that, that's the dream. I don't, why, why would I root for someone not to have their dream? You know, sure. that just kind of seems, that just kind of seems weird um, when you put it like that, you know? So, so part of me was like, hey, it would suck if he left, but this is something he always really wanted to do. I would hope that he would do it. But obviously, you know, building this uh, Tigers infrastructure from the ground up when it comes to pitching and, you know, the proof is in the pudding about early returns for him. I think it's awesome. So, you know, whatever he wanted to do, I respect him so much that I would have been, I, you know, I wouldn't have burned my Chris, my metaphorical Chris Fetter jersey. Let's just phrase it like that. Um. <laughs> well, I know there were a lot of people out there who are, are fans of both the University of Michigan and the Tigers who are like, who are like, uh, very torn. You know, they wanted Fetter <laughs> to be the head coach at UM, and they wanted him to stay with the Tigers. So, um, funny how that. That's works. true. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's, let's go into, so we, we talked about some organizational failures earlier. Let's go into one that seems like a pretty nice success so far, Mr. Riley Green. So Riley Green made his debut last week. Nice little, uh, bloop base hit in his first at bat. Uh, now we're a little more than a week into his major league career and I'll tell you what, seeing him in the lineup, watching him, uh, watching him uh, at the plate, seeing him make nice plays in the field, which we'll talk about the most recent one here in a second, it does give me like a greater sense of, so so this is what that's supposed to look like. This is what this, like when you get, when you get a guy up and look, he's going to have struggles where, you know, where all that's acknowledged and baked in. But this is what it's like. You see the excitement from from the other players. See like AJ Hinch already feeling comfortable enough to put him at the number two spot, which is something we we had talked about that we would love to see um, for a while now. And I don't know. I just want to. I, I I you were in Boston, and obviously he made his debut in in Detroit. So you you got a little bit. You got as long a look at him as anybody. Uh, any kind of key take takeaways from the day to day Riley Green as opposed to the 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 pizzazz of a major league debut? Now it's now it's just now it's just ball, you know. So w- w- any takeaways on that accord? I mean, those of you who have watched the games from home or from wherever know know this as well as I do. But it seems like he's been up here a long time already. You know, yeah. he, he, he never seems has seemed in awe of any of this. He's fit right in. I asked AJ early on, like his second or third game, how'd you how'd you figure out where to put him in the batting order? So I thought that was kind of an interesting debate. Like you'd be like, okay, he's the new kid. We'll put him at eight or nine. Or do you be like, oh, he's really good. Let's put him at you know number two. Or do you? And AJ kind of eased him in, had him like number six. He kind of went with the in between. Um, and he also said, I like rookie hitters, you know, guys in their debut to get up in the first couple of innings, which was kind of an interesting insight, you know, just get them up there, get, get those initial nerves out of the way. And then, you know, Riley has a couple good games and then next thing you know, he's number two. Uh, so AJ did not wait very long. And because is Riley green, the best player on this team right now. I mean, Javi Baez is finally hitting, but like overall, like he, he might be, 
another unfortunate thought I have had as a result of that is like, this isn't really a great look for Spencer Torkelson. Because all this like, yeah. well, he's young. Well, there's a learning curve. Well, the big leagues are hard. Here's this kid who is younger than you who is coming in and being like, no, nah, I got this, you know. <laughs> and we still haven't seen Riley hit for power. We're still waiting on that first home run. Um, as of we're actually recording this before Sunday's game, so that means I'm sure something like Riley will probably hit three homers here Sunday. Yeah, just for the record, I just want to put it out there in case people are critical. I have a family matter to attend to tonight, so therefore it was either now or never. So so that's my fault. So if, uh, I'm sorry for those that are offended if we miss something great on Sunday. But Cody, please. Um, so, you know, he's, he's still uh, finding his footing a little bit too, but they're – there hasn't been that much of an adjustment period. He's just breathed it in and been like, I belong here at the plate. His approach has been really good. He's worked some some good at-bats. In the field, we've seen several highlight plays. Even behind the scenes, he's just uh, he's, he's just kind of fit right in. You know, him and Twerk do spend a lot of time together in the clubhouse, but he doesn't. Sometimes you, you will see these rookies walking around a little wide-eyed or a little timid and and... It just hasn't seemed that way with Riley. Yeah, well, uh, he's. I mean, it's funny you say when you're talking about. It feels like he's been up a while because, as I'm saying, like he's been up for a week. I was like, wait, is it two? Is it three? Like it just kind of felt. <laughs> I kind of had to almost like correct myself, but then correct myself from correcting myself. Uh, if you, in case you missed it, you got to go on Twitter, or ESPN, or LB.com or whatever. And find the catch that he made on Saturday night, which is, I think that's probably as good a catch as you could ever possibly see from an outfield that didn't involve robbing a home run. I think if you rob a home run, there's a little bit, you know, because you're, you know, literally taking away a run there or multiple potentially there, you can give that the edge, but sprint to full extension dive, to not even any sort of regard for catching himself on a fall, extended every bit of his reach. And not only that, but had to catch it backhanded, which is harder to do uh, because he was going to his left, so he has to reach his right hand out to catch. That was his final play, and... Some little little numbers, some little stat cast numbers from that play. Um, he had a 25% probability of catching that ball. He ran, or he covered, I should say, 27.2 feet per second to get to that ball. And in total, he ran about 73, 75 feet to get there. Uh, I will remind everybody that... Riley Green as a draft prospect and as a, a minor league prospect was never really regarded as a center fielder um, back when your now colleague Keith Law. Now he was not alone. I just kind of wanted to go to you know someone of authority and name and then uh, see what they were saying about Riley Green when he was still in high school fielding wise. Future left fielder, this is a quote, future left fielder who needs to work on his reads of fly balls. Now, in fairness, you're evaluating a high schooler. 
There, you know, there's Riley Green's obviously gotten better since when he was 17, 18 years old. I'm not dragging Keith here, 100%. Not dragging him. He was not alone in that assessment, and Riley also made a you know some pretty nice plays in Boston as well in that tricky center field. And to me, I just haven't seen anything that makes me think can't do it. Can't do it. I can't do it, not can't doing it. He he looks like a center fielder to me. Maybe not the prettiest. Maybe not a center fielder built out of a lab. But I'm not looking to put him in yeah, a corner. I, I'll I mean, say I've, that. I felt that way largely since the first time I saw Riley play in person. He was in West Michigan. I went to go see him and was going to pay a lot of attention to his outfield play. Because that was kind of the knock. And very early on, I was like, where did this even come from? Because this kid gets good reads, gets a good beat on the ball, um, covers plenty of ground. I still wonder if, like, long-term, a corner, if you have an outfield with, like, a burner, terrific defensive center fielder, you know, Riley ideally uh, probably plays a corner just because he doesn't have that elite speed. But he's he's got really, really good instincts. Like, um, I think he could certainly be above average in in center field and we're seeing why and he's never shown anything to the contrary since he's been in the organization doesn't quite have that typical center field speed but does a pretty good job making up for it with the way he reads balls with the routes he takes with just that general wow factor that's hard to explain but seems like the dude's always making a great play and psa victor reyes if riley green calls for the ball just let him catch it <laughs> final out from saturday um so so yeah it, it's a it's a pleasure to watch him play at the plate and in the field and uh just makes me feel generally speaking a lot better about the tigers than i would be otherwise considering their record a reminder to take everything we're going to talk about leading up to the draft like you got to take these scouting reports with a grain of salt a lot of times there's a lot of truth and sometimes something gets in there that just isn't accurate or maybe it started when a kid was was a junior in high school but then he improved and it kind of persists in these scouting reports not always the truth so you know the the the, the tigers the past couple of years have done a very good job of having some guys come up and do some great things and then have some struggles so we talk about how great riley green has been you mentioned the spencer torkelson season-long struggle uh um, just give a quick little update. I'm still kind of being firm as I'm not really wanting to see him go down to Toledo unless he wants to, unless he feels overexposed and he wants the reset. Uh, generally speaking, I'd still really like for, uh, for him to be in Detroit. I'm not saying it'd be a bad thing to send him down. I'm just still not looking for it. Uh, so that's quick, quick behind the scenes nugget. I was thinking of writing, um, a Torkelson story it was after he had had, what, two hits and three, I think yep. three straight games. I, I thought his swings were looking a little better. And I didn't get to talk to him in Boston because one of the unwritten rules of covering baseball is that if a player is sitting on the couch in the clubhouse, you are not supposed to disturb them. Well, Tork was sitting on the couch watching college baseball like the whole time, so I did not. I <laughs> uh, was unable to interview Spencer Torkelson, and ultimately glad I didn't because by the end of that series and into now, like, I wasn't really that much. So, uh, did he actually like turn a corner? I don't think so. And also the idea that like, oh, his buddy Riley is here. That's going to help him. Like that's that's 
like that's pretty dumb that's not really how that's made works. up that's not a real thing but uh but okay <laughs> so somebody that we've come to admire for his performances and his demeanor has hit a skid recently excuse me Tarek Skubal has had he's put together three not 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 so hot not so not so hot starts to uh, all kind of unique actually uh, when you think about it uh, in terms of like short long runs bottom line not really up to the Tarek Skubal that we've come to experience this year a guy that was being pegged and you know he still might get there or whatever but being pegged as an all-star and I'm trying to think of explanations for, you know, maybe something that there isn't really a great explanation for. I'm wondering, because if you'll recall, Cody, when he kind of started being real hot and everybody else in the staff was was dropping like flies, I was like, how is he handling it now? And And you said, you know, he's more relaxed he feels like he's not made it but gotten to where he needed to be in order to get to the next step uh paraphrasing your answer to that question so now i'm kind of forced to i'm forced to think like schoolboy's still a young guy obviously a smart guy a guy who is aware of the team's struggles with scoring runs being as he is the de facto ace now, I'm almost curious if he's putting a lot of pressure on himself to kind of deliver the goods, knowing that if he doesn't, then the team's chances of winning go down significantly. And then everybody's looking to him as like, cause like the Rangers, not the Rangers, um, what was the series where the, he was on the rubber? Uh, it was in the rubber match. I'm blanking. I'm sorry. Bad podcasting. But it was uh, uh, Blue, Blue, Blue Jays. Jays. Blue Jays. That's right. Blue Jays. You know, it's like, all right. Got Tarek Skubal out there. Chance to take the series against a really good team. And, you know, he just didn't have it. So I'm, I'm curious if that's a factor. Or if there is something just more technical. Or if it's just... Hey man, there's baseball. You make a lot of starts, you make a lot of pitches. Not everyone go, not all of them go according to plan. This kind of thing happens. I believe AJ had said something like three good starts doesn't make you an ace. Three bad starts doesn't make you a bust." Uh, that's obviously true, but if we're trying to dig deeper, like is that something that Tarek would think about? I don't know. I don't interview him. Uh, I don't. I'm not around him on a daily basis, but. That was sort of something that I I, I kind of pondered in my head. Well, we've talked about the Tarek of, of old, uh, very serious, very, very intense. And he was definitely back to that after his outing in Boston. He was uh, very short with his answers. He was visibly frustrated. And, and look, I can't blame him. It was his third consecutive kind of subpar outing. And... Um, you know, he's a competitor, still not that far removed from the heat of the moment. It was clearly weighing on him. Now, how much does that psychology factor in? I think it depends on who the guy is. I've always liked Tarek's psychological makeup. 
Um, I think in terms of his general, like, performance, I don't know. I think he just got his mechanics out of whack a little bit. He had talked before his start in Boston about um, not really being in sync, basically his his uh, lower half, his foot hitting the ground, and then he's either trying to speed his arm up to catch up or his arm is simply lagging behind. You could see on the release point visuals, it wasn't terrible against the Red Sox, but there were a few pitches that were a little bit out of whack. And it's pretty simple as his arm sign command hasn't been there, I would say, as a result of um, this mechanical flaw. Once I started looking for it, I, I could see it pretty easily, especially in, I think it was his the fourth inning against the Red Sox, um, when he unraveled a little bit, and without being able to establish the inner part of the plate against right-handers, that really hurt him, kind of has to change the way he pitches. I would like to think maybe he's a simple mechanical adjustment away from uh, being right back to dominating dudes. But the point I, I made in my story is like, there's also a reminder of how hard it really is. You don't just wake up one day and, oh, I'm an ace now. Didn't really happen that way for Justin Verlander or for Max Scherzer or for Garrett Cole. They were pretty slow progressions of this guy's really good to this guy's really good and he's having some good performances to people forget the okay ups this and dude's downs elite Verlander. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like to think that's a little bit more what we're seeing with Scooble. Like it still is a story. Why is his performance not not what it was? I think that's totally fair to talk about and analyze, but. I'm not at all selling my Tarek Skubal stock. Um, on the more radical sex of Tiger's Twitter, the idea, like, should he be traded, pops up if you're really trying to acquire bats. I'm of the mindset that if you're trying to trade, I'd listen to anything, but, like, have to be a damn good offer for me to even really seriously consider that. Because I, um, I think if you got one dude you can count on right now, you can feel pretty good about it being... Yeah, the conversation for me starts with Juan Soto, and uh, you know I I, I listen. Uh, I went to I was at a bachelor party this weekend. I went to the Rangers Nationals game. The guy just wanted to go to the game to uh, just so specifically to see Juan Soto. Uh, and it was my one of my favorite non tiger probably my favorite non tiger uh, in baseball. Yeah. the it's a story, like you said. It's not something I'm overly worried about, but it is It is still a little perplexing and just another reminder of not only how hard it is to get to that level, but it's also a reminder that this guy is still a very young major leaguer, um, as you point out in the story, less than two years of service time, and... That's also why I thought like maybe the young guy's putting too much pressure on himself when he knows that he's the guy right now and the Tigers struggle to score runs and blah blah blah. So that was sort of my thought process getting there. Um, you brought up the trade thing, so we can kind of we, we can do a little tease, a little tease. I don't want to get too much into trade talk today because uh, we'll we'll have plenty of time to do so. Not really that much interested in trading Scooble. I did just kind of write down the three bullpen arms that are going to be more commonly talked about. And this is just sort of like a, a base for uh, just something that everybody kind of have when you see somebody's name just speculated on Twitter. Not rumors, but speculated on Twitter. 
So speaking of Soto, Tiger Soto, Gregory Soto, um, he's under he's 27 years old and under team control until 2025. Michael Fulmer, 29, is a free agent after this year. And Joe Jimenez, who deserves some flowers right now, by the way, is 27 years old and under team control. He's got one more year of arbitration, so uh, be a free agent after next season. Uh, not really much of bats of trade value right now. The the Grossman, the Scopes of the world just aren't performing well enough that you that you you'd probably be selling what sixty cents on the dollar. Uh, if that, 55, maybe less than 50. Yeah. I mean, hard, hard to imagine, yeah. imagine so, you getting much at all for those the, the bullpen, as deep as it is, as good as it is, is going to be, like, the source of, like, trade talks. And I, I kind of think that, depending on what the Tigers do at the deadline, might give a little bit of an indication of how they're viewing organizational structure going forward. So, like, the, the reason I say that, now, Fulmer being a free agent's different. So, if they trade Fulmer, you talked about this with Dan on the radio, get a Reese Olsen type, feeling good about that. But if you trade Soto with that many years of team control left, that either tells me, A, you're you're not really valuing like having a closer per se maybe you're just looking at maybe you're using a holistic approach to the bullpen which by the way i'm not saying it's the wrong move but we we built up soto to be this closer this all-star blah 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 and he is the guy in the ninth inning. There's no doubt about it. But if you trade him away, that kind of makes me think you're going a little bit more committee approach. Um, and Because we're still early. Talked about Federer earlier. We're still early in the buildup of organizational pitching structure analysis. You know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe it's a thing where they don't really value that as highly as other organizations. That's just me speculating. So... I think the trade deadline, in a lot of ways, it kind of tells you what the front office, what the coaching staff thinks about the current construction of the team and then in the future. So if you trade Soto, in my opinion, that kind of means you're not really looking to have capital T, the closer. You might have a closer or a arm that you can bring in the ninth inning you're comfortable with, but I don't know if you're looking for the the closer as we grew up with uh, thinking of it that way. Uh, Jimenez is an interesting one. Was he at 24 innings of scoreless ball? Uh, I kind of wish he had more team control because then you'd say like, okay, well, then you trade Soto and then you just kind of throw in Jimenez and just kind of see what that's all about. I know that's been tried before, but, you know, like there's a reason he's still here and it's not because he's had a linear progression. (laughs) You know, and so... That'll be very interesting. Soto would be more attractive because of the team control. Fulmer would probably be the easiest one to deal. Jimenez is kind of a little bit of a wild card in this situation. And also, you know, reminder, you still have injuries to Funkhauser, Cisnero. 
uh how much that plays into it how much how much confidence does the front office the coaching staff have in Funkhauser who's obviously still more on the younger ish side um you know maybe Alex Lane gets a leverage you know more leverage chances like who knows there's a lot of possibilities here but I think if they trade away Gregory Soto they might say that might be an indication of we don't need a uh, like the ace of the back end if that makes sense yeah it would actually be a, a, a shift in strategy from last year I think right after the deadline passed Al Vila was fairly candid in saying they weren't too interested in moving Soto or Cisnero because they had team control and they wanted to build a winner in 2022 and so why would you trade guys who were established in your bullpen um this year i wonder if you're looking at it differently unfortunately you talk about coming to grips with reality um maybe you got to admit that you're not that close to being instant contenders i mean i think you should still be trying to trying to win trying to get a wild card spot in 2023 or whatever um, but I wonder if the best course of action is not just to trade anyone and everyone you can. That being said, I'm not really going to knock Al at the deadline if the Tigers don't do much because they don't have that much leverage. They don't have a lot of guys who are going to generate much in return. Soto is probably the best uh, realistic trade chip, and so that does create a tough decision. Do you trade this guy who's under team control through 2025? Or do you keep him and he's your closer for years to come? Uh, then it's I think you got to look at what's being offered in return. If you can get like a bat that you think can be good at the major league level, which is still a pretty big return for a closer, man, then I think I think you should do it because one of the good things is you are showing you can build a bullpen. You got some other dudes such as Alex Lang who can come in and. And you could get Kyle Funkhauser back next year. And, you know, there's some other uh, hard-throwing arms in the system that you could develop into something. Like, I would not be too attached. Relievers, by the very nature, they're going to come and go. Um, so I would not yeah. be too attached to a closer. Also, closers in general, I think, greatly overvalued. Um Short shelf life. Short shelf life, and AJ's shown he can rock the bullpen without a committee as well as anyone. Um, so I wouldn't at all be, I don't know, like I wouldn't trade Soto for nothing, you know, but if you can get a bat, if he can help you get a bat, then I think you do it. I still yeah. think that's a pretty big if, um, mm -hmm. because getting a young hitter, not easy to do as the Tigers have come to learn uh, the hard way. And everybody knows that too, like how valuable majorly productive bats are. That's why they don't get traded all that often. Right. <laughs> That's a, there's a, there's a reason for that. Um, okay, let's uh, kind of go to the tail end of, of this pod on. Like I don't know how you rank it, Cody, but in terms of me knowing you. Best man at my wedding. I was like, the best man at my wedding's in the booth with Dan Dickerson right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Like I, I was, I was like, this is this is so great. Um, so I have a couple just little questions that I'll throw at you here in a second um, about maybe some process stuff because I'm a process curious guy. But uh, oh, hold on, Kieran, that's they, a, that's a better reaction than, than my father, who's probably like a big reason I'm doing this job in the first place, and he was just like. Oh, you know, I've heard you on the radio before, right? 
<laughs> and he did tune in and listen, but it was still like, I don't know what that tells you about my psychology. Maybe I wasn't able to make dad proud, you know, as much as I was hoping to. All right, so as we move away from Cats in the Cradle, uh, let's go ahead and, uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the Tigers radio lineage is obviously elite. We all know this. Don't have to go into it. Um, I will say that because, like, when we had my dad, our dads on for Father's Day last year, my dad said, you know, you go around Detroit, everyone has their windows down, and you just hear Ernie Harwell everywhere you go because everyone's listening to the Tigers game. So uh, you were able to be a part of that legacy, even if it is a small part, one game, a couple games, handful of innings. Um, and I wager it won't be your last one. But just overall, the experience, I know you appreciate baseball history as much as anybody and have as much respect for Dan Dickerson as anybody. So just, what was that like, man? Yeah, it was really cool. I think it was especially cool to do it from Fenway Park, um, probably my favorite major league park, you know, obviously historic beautiful um beautiful night the radio booth has a a great you know kind of wide angle of the park uh kind of got chills just calling a game you know a big league regular season game on the radio from Fenway was uh was absolutely pretty special for me in terms of actually doing the job with Dan you know you're you're live on the radio I guess it's kind of like this podcast and that we kind of, for the most part, go off the top of our heads, but it's different from doing, yeah. you know, some little radio hit where you, they, you kind of know they're going to ask you like three to five questions about what's going on with the team. And you're you more or less know what you're going to say. Like, this is very free flowing. You're kind of trying to fill the air. And my big thing was like, okay, to just, just don't curse, you know, it's really <laughs> trying to make sure I didn't curse. Here's the thing. I think the second night I did curse cause I was trying to say benchmark and I accidentally said bitch mark. Uh, <laughs> so, so I have cursed on the air uh, on a major league badass. broadcast what a badass. Uh, <laughs> unintentionally uh, but yeah I mean the radio is such an interesting art and, and you know a lot about this Kieran but like it takes a little bit of time to get in a rhythm with Dan and, and you don't want to talk over him and you want to let him call the pitch and figuring out when to jump in and jump out is kind of tough, um, and I felt I felt like I did better with that the, the second game than I did the first game, just because it's one of those things that takes takes reps, you know. Um, you definitely get respect for the people who are good at it. Um, but at the same time, Dan just does such a great job of, um, as he told me with Craig Monroe, like he just wants to make it an organic baseball conversation. And so once you get going, that's what it feels like. And I found, I came to be like, oh, this isn't too hard. You know, just talk about what's going on with the team. You know, if I notice something, you know, something mechanical, whatever, talk about that a little bit. And Dan does a great job with bringing his, his own insights. Um, so overall, definitely, uh, definitely one of the coolest experiences of my career, no doubt. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the Craig Monroe story. So, uh, my wife and I went out to uh, dinner on Tuesday, and we went early, and we were. If you saw Craig Monroe, no, no, again, no, 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 didn't see Craig. Unfortunately, okay. that would have that would have led the podcast. Uh, but uh, so I was like, all right, well, Cody's starting. He's about to get started, so all right, paycheck, get in the car, blah blah blah. 
And speaking of Craig Monroe, like based on your Craig Monroe broadcasting story, I was like, so here's what Cody got Dan Dickerson quoted as saying, like, you know, let me call the pitch. People need to know the count. And then you fill in blah, blah, blah. And I was like, watch, Cody's going to get into a point and then he's going to wrap it up so that Dan can jump in and call the next pitch. And and so, like, you know, she probably didn't really care, like, about the intricacies of what I was talking <laughs> about. Obviously, she loves you and was, you know, loved hearing you on the radio and all that stuff. But, like, the intricacy stuff she probably didn't care about. But then, like, you kind of, like, wrap your point up quick. And then Dan comes in. I'm like, see? See what he did there? See? That's because of blah, blah, blah. So my question to you is, how much did the Craig Monroe story help prepare you for this opportunity? Honestly, it really helped. And I was thinking, you know, Dan told me Craig would like pump his fists like a boxer, you know, when he got, and I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly what it's like. You get in there and just punch and then you get out. And, and I knew that, you know, before, but just kind of hearing it explained, uh, I think helped me. And I had done the radio with Dan before in spring training where he doesn't necessarily care about calling every pitch. Um, so I definitely would probably ramble on a little longer when I had done that. And Dan didn't necessarily care because it was, you know, it was spring training. It was more interesting just talking about the players and what's going on and calling every single pitch of, um, of spring training. So I, like, I think I knew to do that, but I definitely think doing the Monroe story helped me like just process how to actually do it. Um, and I, I still think I, you know, almost talked over the pitch or, there were a couple of times Dan called the pitch like a little late after it happened, which I don't know if you could see if you're not watching the game on TV, you know, because uh, I didn't quite wrap it up soon enough. Uh, but it, it it is. It's so much. There's so much more that goes into it than than you might think from what, the outside. What's Dan like in between innings? Um, he's great. He's great. You know, he's he's funny. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely brings some insight that you might not hear him say on the air. Let's put it that way. <laughs> that's great that's great uh he comes across as a guy who generally enjoys doing what he does every day and uh doing it next to him i'm sure that probably came across you can't really fake that kind of enthusiasm and uh for the game for the tigers for the history of the city and, and the franchise and all that stuff so that's awesome that's probably you could write a million great articles uh but i'll i'll probably always kind of think of that as probably the just for me uh yeah, it's one of the coolest opportunities you've had you've had to get because it's a unique thing. Not everybody that's a colleague of yours is able to do that, and um, it's it's created because of what you know Jim Price getting up there in age and and all that stuff and travel and and so yeah, I think it's awesome. Uh, Alex Avila did did uh, that if people want to know what I'm talking about when I did your intro, Alex Avila did. Uh, the Arizona series. He's got a couple more career home runs than you, and you're tied for second because Chris <laughs> Mikoski of the Detroit News uh, also did a game over there in Boston. So, um, what Chris would Chris likes to point out is like great uncle Barney Mikoski, which I don't know if that's actually his uncle, but you know from the I don't even know was it like oh, the '30s Tigers? You know what Barney nah, Mikoski? I can't is? say I could give you a bio on him. Uh, he led the league in triples one year, <laughs> or something like that. Uh, that's not Chris, and I'm not sure if they're actually related or it's just a joke. But he jokes um, about that a lot. You need to find yourself a little niche like that, I guess. Just prepare for your next uh, next broadcast. Um, all right, well, 
Got a little long hair, and that's okay. There's a lot to talk about. Barney McCoskey hit 19 triples in 1940 for the the Tigers. Shout out Barney. Yeah, that's not a that wasn't a bad team either. AL champs uh, lost to the Reds. Reds in the World Series. Am I right on that? I'm not sure who won the 1940 World Series. Yeah, the Reds. Yeah, seven games. Seven games seven. came down to the last uh, last couple of bats, I believe. So, uh, yeah. anywho. See, I do know some things about the Tigers. All right, just I know, I know, I know a few things. I just didn't know who led the league in triples in 1940. Uh, what are you even doing <laughs> with your life? Come on. But all right, we can do a. Uh, I have a, I have a, a, a quick little AJ Hint suggestion box. It just kind of popped in my head randomly. I have no idea why it did, but I was kind of thinking. I was like, you know, you know, it'd be like a great thing to have in the player development system. Is like a way to uh like tipping pitches school like you you uh, you you give some sort of like live tests or video or even just in person somebody doing it and see if you can kind of teach these young players to look for certain things like on the base pass or from the dugout um at certain extent in the uh in the batter's box to figure out tipping pitches because I think those are those little small mm. things that that good teams do. Veteran, we saw it this year with the Yankees, right? And that wasn't the most obvious thing on the planet, like in real time. And so, like, I just think that'd be a nice little. You don't have to announce it. Don't say you're doing it. But I think that'd be a nice little, uh, nice little thing to do in uh, in Lakeland. You know, you bring these guys in, flying tigers everywhere, just. Try to see if you can teach them some of the nuances of that, so that uh, you can bear fruit with it in the major leagues, and it will trickle up. So that's that. That's my suggestion box. I think that'd be. I think that'd be fun. Maybe give them a little test. You know, make that as a part of. It's like, hey, you know, the guy's his hits like a thirty-five, but his pitch tipping pickup. <laughs> is an 80 and so if we could find a way to just kind of get him in the dugout for this series i think it might not be the worst thing on the planet you there know you go. Have, to, have to do the scouting reports and stuff i think it'd be fun i think in the next year we're about to learn a lot more about the depths of pitch tipping and and how big it is becoming as teams try to identify that um been hearing a lot of things you know and supposedly it's all within the rules but it ain't just players like they're i don't know it's becoming a big operation for some teams and i think we're going to learn a lot more about it i think it's really um i think there are reasons the yankees are winning an absurd amount of games i think it's because they're good at pitching picking up pitch tipping that's more in addition to having like a great roster and great pitching and, yeah you know, generally being the Yankees, uh. which, which, by the way, shout the Yankees for being cheap with Aaron Judge. Like, what a great <laughs> move to like haggle an arbitration over three million dollars. Anyway, uh, yeah, my AJ suggestion box. Um, I think the usage of some of the pitching has been interesting recently, um, especially the Alex Fajardo's start in Boston, where he was getting tagged quite a bit and his pitch count was like at 85 through four and AJ brought him back out for the fifth inning and the fifth inning did not go well. Um, you know, 
kind of asked AJ about it. And he said, well, you know, our relievers can't keep throwing this many innings all season long. We're going to burn them. That makes sense. At the same time, I thought it was really counterintuitive to send Fiedo, whose pitch count was already up there, who was getting tagged, to send him back out there. Like, I think in a vacuum, if you're trying to win that game and the Tigers were still in that game, there's not much that, that could give you faith Fiedo would go be effective for the fifth inning. Happened the next night with Bo Brisky. Bo Brisky did get through the fifth inning better, but it was a pretty similar situation. I would just be say I would just say like um don't be afraid to use that bullpen. I think you can, and I know he was trying to get to I think Tyler Alexander. There were some lefties coming up in the bottom of the order. But I think you could have put in like Joe or Foley just for those three outs. You do risk taxing your bullpen, but my general takeaway was like I still think AJ's a little bit, especially in the first game of a series, afraid of burning that bullpen. Um to the point where starters are almost going too long when they're not having good starts. I think that's happened a couple times, my suggestion. Don't be afraid to use that bullpen, man. It's been good. Yeah, yeah. If you have an asset, use it. I mean, that's uh, – it's not like he's not, but uh, yeah. yeah. He, he has used that. it a lot. I'm sure, you know, you've already had so many injuries. I get that line of thinking. Overall, I just don't think it's productive to send a struggling starter back out there when it's pretty clearly not going to go well. True, true. Also, starters, don't put them in that position. Bitch better. Uh, that's that's really the easiest. <laughs> <laughs> Be accountable, players. Just kidding. Be accountable. Um, so. <laughs> don't don't allow you know Rafael Devers and Xander Bogarts to, to hit you. Easy, right? Yeah, Simple. I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this was productive and fun. Wide range of to- wide range of topics. Not all, most of them, not on the field actually, which is which is nice, you know, because we're just about at the halfway point. Some of that stuff becomes a little redundant. So there's enough there's enough going on this week that we didn't have to break down the box score of every game. But I want to thank everybody for listening. You can follow us on Twitter. He is at Cody Stavenhagen. I am at Kieran underscore Steckley. Our pod page is at Turn Corner Pod. Please subscribe, rate, and review Apple, Spotify. If you feel so inclined, we would very much appreciate it. And, you know, maybe maybe this podcast serves a little, little as a little practice, a little taste for the next color commentator for the Detroit Tigers radio broadcast. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds, Cody? Maybe, maybe that's your future. I, I doubt it, but, you know. <laughs> You know, you know how to reach me. You can always give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you everybody for listening. And do I have an wanna... opt out? Do I have an opt out with Ooh. the athletic? I decline to comment. <laughs> We're gonna talk about that for the next year and a half. I think uh, I want. I want to say congratulations, to Cody Clemens, first career home run, a big yeah. one too. That was a really nice moment. Uh, that's probably been the best thing about this season is those little small personal moments for a lot of guys. Uh, it's it's all it, that kind of stuff never gets old. So, for Cody Stavenhagen, I'm Kieran Steckley. Everybody have an amazing week. Yeah.